1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. And as you're finding your place there, in today's passage, Peter is going to introduce a theme for us that's going to permeate every passage from here through chapter 4, verses 11. And this theme is something that impacts everyone's life in here. There is no person that is not touched by this theme. It is something that you probably ask on a daily basis, if not multiple times a day. Peter assumed his readers were going to ask this, and so he wants to answer this question. The question on Peter's mind that he wants to answer is, how do I live when life's not easy? How do I live when life's not easy? Now, maybe some of you, you, you just have great lives with no suffering, and that's where you find yourself today. Is, uh, um, maybe this passage won't apply to you. But I highly doubt there's any of us in this room that doesn't try to answer that question. There's been a, uh, a recent book um, that has come out that answers this same topic, and I would recommend it to you. Um, its title is a little crass, but it is a great book. When Will Life Not Suck? That's the, that's the, the title of the book. But the, 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 the question of, of the day for each of us is, when, when is life going to get easier? When we go home, that's right. And that's Peter's answer. See, I don't even have to preach. He's, he's already got it done for me this morning. Uh, we, we, have, we have, we all struggle. And all of us in this room have had that friend that, to no plight of their own, seems to struggle with everything. They, it seems like they're always under attack. And they come to you and explain to you how other people have sinned against them. And oftentimes, it's a very real, true thing. They have sinned against them. How do you respond to them? How do you respond to them when they come to you, and, and, and they have this problem of, of, of life that they just don't know what to do with, that they've been sinned against in this way? Well, there's a couple of options. First of all, you can have the tribunal. And that's where you set up the, the judgment seat and you put the, the person that has sinned against you on the judgment seat. And you and your friend are going to have, you're going to have court and you're going you're gonna to bash everything that person has ever done. You're going to, when, when you get done, you're going to feel like they're as big as an ant. And there's many people that that's the kind of comfort they give their friends is by, by bashing those who hurt them. Others, it's a pity party. You want to wallow in the pain of that individual, and you're not going to give them any solutions or any help, but you're just going to, you're going to be there. And there's a time and place to listen, but oftentimes we just sit there and, and just wallow in the pity of this person and their sin. Peter chooses a different option today. Peter chooses the option of a friend. See, a friend doesn't do either of those things. That's why he calls them in this passage that we're going to look at, Beloved. He calls them beloved because he sees them as genuine friends. And Peter is going to come alongside them as a friend, and he's going to express concern for their soul. He's going to focus on the hearts of the individual being sinned against, 
more than the person doing the sinning. That's our friend. A friend is someone who is willing to speak even uncomfortable things because you know they need to hear it. A friend is someone who is willing to be the brunt of your anger because they don't want to hear the truth that is coming. And that's what Peter is going to do for us this morning. So he's speaking to everyone here today who has ever been sinned against. And this is what he says to you in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter begins by reminding them to acknowledge the truth. See, we tend to reinterpret life the way that makes us feel comfortable. And many of us want to reinterpret our place in this world. And we've been taught, as I've said before, to reinterpret it as individual consumers. So we begin to believe that the world should serve us. If that's what you've begun to believe, how many of you are disappointed this morning? The world doesn't serve us. Life doesn't serve our every whim. And he begins by telling them to acknowledge the truth. This is who you are. He says you are sojourners and exiles. We cannot deny our place in society. We, we have to remember who we are in this place. So he, he says, I urge you, or I'm coming alongside you as one who's suffering. He's not looking down on them as one who's looking down his nose at them and, and judging them for their suffering. He, he's, not, he's not looking up to them as, as the most wonderful of examples. He's coming alongside them. He's urging them to live a certain way as sojourners and exiles. Now, there's a couple of different ways you can live in society. You can think that you're better than society. And this is what many Christians get accused of, right? Is that they're looking down their nose at society around them and thinking they are somehow better than them. Let's admit at the outset that we in here are not necessarily any better, and we definitely have no more grounds for being better than anybody out there. Apart from God's grace, we are no better than anybody else. Apart from God's grace, we would probably do much, more, much worse than those that the church is often accused of sitting and judging. We're not better than the society. We're also not a part of society. Many churches that want to see, seek to see themselves as this is their home. This is what Peter is combating against. He's saying, no, you're sojourners and exiles. This is not your home. Now, sojourner is not a word we use a lot in today's language. But for them, this was a person that would be traveling through a place. They would have a starting point, and they would have an ending point, and everywhere in between they would be considered sojourners. Now, Peter has been discussing for us our starting point. We've been looking at that over the past several weeks. Our starting point as sinners being saved by grace, nothing of our own. 
And he has an ending point that he's been discussing. This, this home, this eternity that we're, going to be, uh, that we're going to be reaching, this eternity that is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven, who's being guarded by God's power through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at last times. We've discussed both the beginning and end. Now, from this point through chapter 4, verse 11, he's telling us, how do we live in the middle? How do we live when we're not home yet? We, we've not made it to eternity, but we're past where we started. So how do we live now as sojourners and exiles, recognizing this is not our place? Maybe I can illustrate it this way. This is the difference between a homeowner and someone renting a hotel room. Now, how many of you, if you're going to rent a hotel room, you walk in that hotel room and you think, you know what? This room could use a pop of color. I'm going to go buy some paint and paint this, this room. You know what? The mattress is a little uncomfortable. How about I go out and spend a couple thousand dollars on a Tempur-Pedic and put in this, this bad boy? We don't do that. Why? Because the hotel room is not our home. Now, hopefully... We're not like those individuals that destroy hotel rooms because they're not our home. But, but we, it's, it, it's never intended to be the place where we're going to reside. But now what happens when you have a home? Well, you want to think about the stuff that you would never think about otherwise. You want to think about, well, it, is the roof good enough over my head? Or is it going to fall apart? Is there things I need to do? It... it, it is there enough insulation in the attic? Because I don't want to pay too much in heating costs. Is there, is there, an, is there an, You're thinking about all the details of this, this house and its structure and these things. Peter's telling them to remember, this isn't your home. We can rearrange the furniture all we want, but this is not our home. There is something much better, something much bigger at the end of the road. That's our home. Too many times as believers... We start off good. I mean, how many of you, when you're around a new believer, I mean, it's like intoxicating, right? Because they love the Lord more than anything else. They are just so astonished at what God has done for them. They, they are just so overwhelmed that they're, they're, they're going to do anything for God. And somewhere along the road, we tend to forget that this is not our home. And we tend to forget that there's something much bigger that has happened. And so we start nesting, if you will. We start slapping paint on the hotel room, changing out mattresses. For what purpose? For what purpose? Is, is it so the next person that comes and rents this room can benefit from it? Well, that's not what's on our heart. It's so that we can enjoy it, so that we can be comfortable. He's reminding them to keep this mindset among themselves, that they are sojourners and exiles. This is also used in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. The author says, these all died in faith. This is, this is after he goes through the list of faith, these individuals that express faith. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised them, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers or sojourners and exiles on the earth. Notice that. These people, they died in faith, recognizing 
that they haven't received in this life the promise of God, but there was something, something just beyond, something that they could see. And they acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles to their, this earth, that this was not their home. For people who, this is what he continues to say, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are still seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had plenty of opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This is the mindset that Peter is calling them to. Look at those people that have gone before you who recognize that this was not their home, that God was preparing a better place for them. Where do you see yourself in the midst of suffering? Where do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as though your home were being attacked? Do you see yourself as trying to fit in? Do you see yourself as thinking that you're above society and you don't deserve that? If we are to go any further in this book, we have to acknowledge that this is not our place. That God has prepared a kingdom for us. And we're not looking up to society to try to make our kingdom like the world makes it. We're not looking down on society as though we are better than them. We are going through this world trying to bring as many people as we can into God's kingdom, God's place for each of us. That is where we are. We are, as VBS has said, trying to find our place in God's story, realizing that this is not our home. As you consider your place in this world, oftentimes we can begin looking outward and even comparing ourselves to the world around us. Peter doesn't begin with the world, but with our soul. Think for just a moment. The last time that you suffered, when is that? When, what did you do in that moment? The last time someone sinned against you or, or something horrible happened to you, does that tend to cause you to look in or look out at everything that's wrong that's happening to you? This would have been the temptation. Remember, the people to whom Peter is writing, they are being dispersed because of persecution. They're being, they're being killed for their faith and put out of their homes for their faith. And this is the kind of encouragement Peter gives them. Now, some of you may be saying, well, glad he's not my friend. I'm telling you, this is the best friend that you can have. He's saying, don't be so focused on everything outside of you. Use those things as an opportunity to look at the state of your own soul. That's why he says right after that, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, admitting who they are and where they're at, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Now, in verse 2, or in chapter 2, verse 1, he has already told them to put away all these evil things. Now he's telling them, keep doing that. Why would he need to do that? He's already said that. I mean, when Peter wrote this letter, it wouldn't have been broken up like we're doing now. It would have been read as, as one message. It would have, they would have got up before the church and read this whole message. Does he really need to, a minute later, say, 
Now, those things I told you not to do, still, keep, still don't do them. Why, why would Peter need to do that? Because you and I know in our own hearts that it only takes a moment for us to forget. Now, some of us, you blame that on age. It's not age. It's just sin. Our hearts are all prone to it. In a moment, we forget. So he reminds them, you have to continue to abstain. Yes, put those things away and then continue to keep them away. The removal of sin is not a one-and-done kind of thing in the Christian life. But it's something that we have to continually practice and practice as we go. The most encouraging thing to me would be for one of you to come forward and say, you know what, I've been struggling with this sin my whole life and I'm just tired. And that would be encouraging to me because I would know you've been struggling with sin. You've been fighting. That's what, that's what we do. That's what believers do. We fight. We, we, we struggle. We don't have it all put together. We don't have it done. This is, this is what we need to hear is that the Christian life isn't easy. That we're going to have to continue to abstain. Continue to put away sin in our life. For the sake of the youth and children in this room, be honest about your sin. Be honest. Acknowledge the fact that you struggle too. That we're in this together, abstaining from what? From the passions of the flesh. Now, automatically, we want to take those things to mean uh, sexual sin and drunkenness and, 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 and all those physical sins. And while it definitely contains that, I think he's referring once again back to chapter 2, verse 1. These are the kinds of sins that you and your flesh and your sinfulness want to do. You're the kind of person that wants to be deceitful. You're the kind of person that wants to be angry. You want to be hypocritical. You want to envy. You want to slander. And apart from God's grace, that is how we are going to continue. But I pray that we have all experienced God's grace and our lives have been transformed. And we no longer want those things, but we hate those things. He's saying, abstain from those things. Abstain from them. Keep putting them out of your life. Why? Why should we do that? Because they're waging war against your soul. I'm afraid we think of Christian warfare as being only in the big moments of life. We think of, of the Christian battle being only at the, the deepest of trenches. Peter here is referring to the mundane, to your Monday morning when you got to get out of bed and you don't have school to go to. I've already heard the kids talking about this. They don't have school to go to. You've got to get out of bed and, or, or you got to get out of bed and you got to go to work. Right then, that's when you're going to be battling sin. Right then is when you're going to be battling a war in your heart. When, when, when the most mundane of things happen and, and this war is not a pillow fight. It's not a boxing match, even. In a boxing match, there's an end, right? You get up, you shake hands with the, with the guy. It's over. This is not a boxing match. This is espionage. 
This is, this is the kind of battle that's going on in our life which is going to cause us, it's going to catch us off guard. It's going to catch us when we least expect it. A dear friend of mine, um, this illustration sticks in my mind because he shared it with me, and I cannot think of the Christian life in any other way. He had a friend, uh, he was in California, at a tr- at, um, he was a pastor at John MacArthur's church, and he had a friend that was a, um, he, w- he was in the military, and he got, ho- got to come home for leave from the middle of the war. I mean, he had survived three tours, and I mean, one of the utmost of military men. And he came home, and he was going to this pastor's conference. And he was so excited that he's going to a pastor's conference because he's going to go be a chaplain for the military men. And he is, he is just thrilled. And so he's coming across the street to this pastor's conference to, to meet my friend. And as he's coming across the street, he gets hit by a car and dies. Now, I know that seems brutal, and I just, you know, that takes the mood down. But this is what we do in the Christian life. We come out of the trenches and think we're okay. I've done the hard stuff. I'm safe now. I'm safe. I don't have to worry about it. I I don't have to worry about when when sin is going to capture my heart because I'm not in those moments. I'm not in the bar, so I don't have to worry about that. I'm not not hanging out with the people that, that, that are blatant sinners. I don't have to worry about it. That's not when sin catches us. Sin catches us when we aren't expecting it. That's why Peter tells them, sin is waging a war. Sin is waging a war on your soul, and it's going to get you when you don't expect it. It's going to get you when you've been sinned against. It's going to get it when you think you're in the right and they're in the wrong. That's when sin is going to get you. And he says that we have to consider our souls in those moments, that we would not be kept off guard. James 1, 14 through 15 says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Peter is warning them, there's something that is waging war. It's seeking the death of your soul. Our biggest problem is not outside of us. Our biggest problem is in our own hearts. If we're going to change something, we have to start there. These opportunities, when we've been sinned against, they provide the best test for the Christian life. The best test for whether or not you're a Christian is when you are being persecuted, tempted, and tried. Because it's in those moments your true colors come out. Sitting here is not the best test for your Christianity. The fact that you go to church is not the best test for your Christianity. The best test for your Christianity is when your children are screaming and fighting and and you want to, with everything inside of you, unleash anger and justice for they're disrupting your peace. The best test is when you have been cut off. Of course, this isn't St. Louis, so that doesn't happen as often. Uh, It's when you get behind a tractor and you're in a hurry. Okay, that's the best test. Because in those moments, your heart's saying, doesn't he know I have to go somewhere? 
Don't they know I've got some place to be? That's the best test. It's like, it's like a tea bag. You can take a tea bag and you can smell it, and it has an aroma, right? And, and you can, uh, I guess if you wanted to, you could eat the dry leaves and it's going to have a flavor. It's probably not going to be the, the nicest of flavors. But what happens when you put that tea bag in a cup of hot water? Everything inside of it is revealed. It has a certain kind of aroma. It has a certain kind of flavor. This is the Christian life. When you and I are put in the heat of life, there's something that comes out of us. And that is the biggest test of where our hearts are at. When our marriages are hurting, when, when our jobs are hard, when we're, we're suffering even in the church, that's the test for our souls. He doesn't, however, leave it with just us. He does finally get to the other people. You know, that's where we want to start. That's not where he starts. He gets to the other people. But when he gets there, he's not where you think he's going to get. Notice what he says. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Just Now, that's not where you want to be, is it? You want to be like, all right, now I've made it through the suffering. I've examined my own soul. God, strike them dead. Like, that's, that's where you want to be when you're suffering. You want to be David, right? You want to read those Psalms of vengeance. But what does he say? Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Conduct is one of Peter's favorite words for describing the way our new life in Christ looks like. It's our conduct. It's the way we behave in all of life. It's what people see when we're not at church. It's what, it's what our families see when we're behind closed doors in our, fam, in our home. It, it, it's, it's what we do all of life. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? Because he's probably logistically speaking to Gentiles. So who's he referring to? Those outside the faith. Those outside the church. So keep your conduct among those outside the church honorable. The way you should live, even among the lost, should seem honorable to them. There, there are people that are lost that acknowledge a good thing when they see it. They have no concept of Christ, but they can see something different in you, and they're not sure why, but it, it sure looks nice. It sure seems honorable. Live in such a way that even those outside of Christ recognize that there's something different. Why? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. Notice, he says, so that when they speak against you as evildoers. He doesn't say if. He doesn't say there will no longer be people, if you act right, there will no longer be people that persecute you. That's not what he says. He says that when they persecute you, they will see your good deeds. So that when they speak against you, and, and that word literally means when they speak down at you, when, when they are judging you, when they are assuming they understand you, they will see your good deeds. 
explain to me how that's going to happen if we're in a holy huddle. How are lost people going to see the difference in believers if we only hang out with believers? How are lost people going to see that the church is different? Church being the people, not the building. How are they going to see that they're different if you're only with church people? Now, we should always be, we should be with church people. Fellowship is commanded by God. But we are also to be among the lost that they might see our good deeds And notice there's something different about us. That they might see us. Matthew 5, 14 through 16 says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that when they see your good works and give glory to to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus already tied these two thoughts together. When they see your good works because you're different, they will give glory to God who is in heaven. What is Peter concerned with here? He's not concerned with their justice. He's not concerned with their punishment. He's concerned with the fact that they might see God. He's concerned for their souls. That's who Peter is concerned with here. He's concerned with, are are these people that are sinning against me, do they even know Jesus? Have they experienced the grace that I have? Do they have hope? That's why he goes on to, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, a lot of people want to make this day of visitation out to be when Jesus returns. I don't necessarily think that's when this is, and this is why. Peter, in Acts 15, this is what's happening to him. He's with Paul and Barnabas, and actually he's getting chided by Paul and Barnabas. And all the assembly fell silent. This is Acts 15, verse 12 through 14. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and at Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And they finished speaking. James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon, that is Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. In this this council that they're having, how do they see God's visitation? They see it as when these people accepted Christ. They see it as this opportunity in which People saw God in them and gave glory to God. We may not see it, but our desire should be for those who persecute us to see Jesus. They should see the good deeds in us. And when Jesus confronts them on their sin, when they're confronted with the gospel, they might repent and believe and give glory to God alone. Is that the concern of your heart? How do you feel about those who've done evil to you? Would you rather them come to Christ or go to hell? I plead with you that each and every one of us in this room would plead with God. We would desire, deeply desire, for those who have sinned against us to come to know Jesus. That we would would desire for their hearts to be transformed. 
I think Paul models this for us. Now, we hear about this in Sunday school, but I think we miss something here. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas, they're in prison. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now, wait a minute. They're in prison. It's midnight. and We're not talking like cush prisons here. Um, they're in prison, and they're, they're singing hymns to God. They're just proclaiming His greatness. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. What would you do if you were Paul and Silas in that moment? Think about this. You're in prison unlawfully, because you are sharing the gospel. They're sinning against you. You didn't do anything wrong. You're singing hymns to God. God opens the doors with an earthquake. What would you do in that moment? If we're honest, every single one of us would run. We'd be out of there. God has answered our prayer. He has let us go. But listen to what happens. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. What would you do in that moment if you were still there? You'd just be, I'm not here. Just let go on, do whatever you're going to do. Um, you don't want to be the one that, on the chopping block. You don't want to be the one that, that is being persecuted. But what, is, what do Paul and Silas say? But Paul cried with a loud voice. He screamed, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the, his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house, set food before them, and rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. What a difference. What a difference. In that moment of suffering, Paul and Silas could have been sitting in the jail whining and complaining about their unjust treatment. Paul and Silas could have ran for their life. Paul and Silas could have let him kill himself. But what do they do? They live in an honorable way so that when they see their good deeds, they Say, what must I do to be saved? What, what, what must I do? They, and they believe in Jesus. He and this whole household believes in Jesus because of this one instance of suffering well. How well are you suffering this morning? How well are you suffering this morning? Are, are you acknowledging the truth? that this earth is not your home. Is that where you're at this morning? Or are you mourning the loss of your comfort? Are, are you considering your suffering 
and thinking, what is this revealing in my own heart? How have I sinned in this moment? How have I neglected God in this moment? How have I denied the grace of God in this moment? Is it revealing to you a heart of anger, of bitterness, of, of, of retreat, of, of, of just sin? How are you considering the souls of those who are persecuting you? Do you truly desire for them to know Christ more than receiving your own comfort? Where are you at in your suffering? Bow with me in prayer. Gracious Father, we come to you this morning.